You're listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, brought to you by Axis DX. This is a show for the lab professionals and medical directors who bring forward novel diagnostic tests to advance modern medicine. Let's dive into the conversation. Donna, thank you so much for joining us today. Been looking forward to this conversation and really appreciate your willingness to join us. Glad to be here. Let's just jump right into it. And as you know, we want to talk about personalized medicine and all that entails and some of the good, the bad, the ugly, if you will. So why don't we start by you defining personalized medicine for us? Well, as a originally a clinician, now an industry executive, you know, I've always thought about personalized medicine as something which somebody takes responsibility for themselves, the person, in trying to sort of manage their health over the long haul. There's an awful lot. And then the whole field of genetic testing came in and you saw the advancement of, first of all, therapeutics, and then got targeted to the diagnostics that would trigger them. You know, the most, the one that most people know the most about is the BRCA gene, that when you have it, if you've got the wrong kind of gene, uh, you have more of a predisposition for breast cancer. And when you're diagnosed, you can have very specific treatments. That's sort of the personalized medicine, genetics-based therapeutic intervention that had the industry very hopeful about what they might be able to learn about people individually, and then as the need progressed, be able to treat them individually going forward when there was an event to be or a disease to be treated. I personally have thought about personalized medicine more in the who am I, what do I need to know about myself, how do I understand what my physical biology is so that I can help manage disease that attacks me or pandemics that are surrounding me. And, you know, I think about it from both directions, from the therapeutic intervention in, but first of all, you have to know what you are, what you're made of before you can actually know how to use it most effectively, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So in that context, how would you see, what type of advancements do you think we've made in the last decade or so? Hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent on developing an understanding of the genome and how it all is altered with age, pollution, outside stresses, etc., which happen to individuals as they go through their life. Lots and lots and lots. In fact, too much money for the return that it has gotten at this point, I think, has been invested and not enough time by the payers, because I know part of what we're talking about here is you know, how do, how do the healthcare plan payers get involved? Not enough of them by supporting the individual profiling of people because it's really, in order to benefit from personalized medicine, you have to know what you are, and we don't do enough individualized baseline testing at different phases in our lives as a routine practice for us to practice who am I and how can I get better and how can I live longer and how can I buffer when I become ill. Again, the pandemic taught all of us a a lot of things about how we should be responding to um, suggestions, testing, 
therapeutics, et cetera, and taking more individual responsibility partnered with practitioners who know what they're doing. The payers really have watched it, dabbled in it, but I don't think they are proactive enough when they take on a member in order to get that baseline done. And, you know, we can talk, we talked before we started a little bit about the concept of personalized or concierge medicine, how it actually has affected the way I look at things and the what I see in the communities in which I work and people that I'm involved with. And why don't you think health plans have taken the uh, initiative of kind of um, understanding us as individuals? What, what do, you, do you think there's anything holding them back? I think they're getting better, but I think in general, we are all a react versus being proactive society. You know, we don't, we don't run, we don't sit down and do a full, most people don't sit down and do an assessment or are forced to do an assessment with a rich, poor, you know, young, old, you need a baseline and you need a repetitive baseline over periods. Maybe it's only every 10 years as, or, or, and as you get older a little bit more frequently. But I don't think that insurance is purchased is sold and purchased by I'm a member in general, general information. You know, when I, as an executive, I have chemo and life insurance. And so I have to have a physical for that because they assess what your status is and then price your chemo and life insurance based on your, your, your overall health. So I was forced into on that, but that's the first time in order to get any kind of insurance that I had to go through a process other than I'm this old, I weigh this much, and you know I have a history of. Not, not lots of testing, just the general. Then you sign on. And so it's the whole statistical balance of lots of people paying a certain amount and only responding, and then as needed, and as you have to sort of argue about getting payment for things in general, it's still a respond to an event rather than um, have yourself set up to be responsive to what's around you on your own personal responsibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it seems like the, not only the system, but we as individuals are very reactionary when it comes to our own health care. Well, and, you know, long lines at waiting times at physicians' offices, you know, a paucity of providers, a paucity of locations, Access to health care, you can go and get health care in many more locations than you've ever been able to. You can go to a CVS Minimed or Village MD owned by Walgreens and get access to a some sort of a professional urgent or an urgent care. But again, you don't go there unless you feel like you need to see someone. So that's that's response-based medicine versus proactive medicine. And I think we are the way things are evolving, healthcare is actually teaching people only to go on a reactive basis versus um, a proactive basis. The whole shifting of healthcare delivery from individual practices into integrated delivery net networks, IDN, is, in my view, a very positive relationship between hospitals, providers of all varieties. You know, it, it should be, it's a constructive system. However, 
the system doesn't invite start in the middle, get a baseline, and then work around the system. The system still invites, you know, I am a I am a node on this network and you see me and um, you see me on a response basis versus a coordinated basis um, necessarily. So I do think the biggest advancement is the formation of well-managed integrated delivery networks. And I underline well-managed clinician intensive, and it doesn't have to be just, it could be physician extenders. I think in the nurse practitioners, maybe one of the most valuable providers in the healthcare system. I mean, it comes from the fact that I'm originally a practicing nurse and a certified critical care nurse. But as I've I've watched things evolve, you know, a well-trained, clinically oriented, not physician, but physician extender is one of the most cost-effective components to the healthcare system. And having them utilize better, utilize more frequently is in an integrated delivery system is, I think, part of the ideal model. And when you take a look at that, Donna, and say, okay, well, with a well-run integrated delivery model, how would that group benefit and support what we call the integration of a more personalized approach to medicine? First of all, they have to have getting back to lab tests, which people always look at as a when it's really the most one of the most valuable diagnostic the valuable tools in everybody's armatorium. They you know don't like to order them and don't like to pay for them. And the the ones that provide the most value, they run for cover with you know the big genetic screening testing. Basically, if you come into the system, you should have a baseline done. And you should have professional plus tools, laboratory tools, genetic testing, profiling. We don't use immunologic screening enough. Genetic, the BRCA example goes to the genes. The example of running, you know, your body is a system and your immune response goes up and down based on a variety of things that you are affected by. And a broad immunologic screening, which basically says, you know, where, where is your immune system strengths, where is its weaknesses, is like a recipe for how to do something right or bake something wrong, you know. So I think I'm not sure we need as much baseline genetic testing unless there's a, a real historical reason for it. But I think broad immunologic screening testing across the, a myriad of autoimmune diseases, et cetera. Is, should be part of everybody's regular, at least every five, like we do mammograms, something like that should be done because it it's a window to who you are at that time and what you need to do to make sure you stay healthy going forward. It gives you some real tools. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, it does go right in alignment with always looking at the other group's interests. You know, a health plan or insurance company they're always looking to help better manage these autoimmune patients, right? Because they're, they're popping up a lot more often, and plus therapies associated with them are getting costly. Exactly. They're high-cost, low-level chronic, which means you you can pick them up early and you live with them for a very long time, so case cost is high because of 
chronic disease equals frequent trips. Chronic disease often has have expensive therapeutic interventions. And so knowing more on a more regular basis should be able to drive down costs all the way at every point in the, um, in the system. When I was an executive at a very large corporation, we actually, I was part of the health man- cost management group, and you and I have never talked about this, Perry, but we actually ran, we self-insured. We basically did all the, contra- we, we had three huge employee bases. We had a very large one in one north, I'm, I'm not going to name the corporation, but I'll say in a northern city and then one in the, in and around Atlanta. There's enough corporations where you, and then one in a very southern city and then one out in California. So we had like thousands of people in each of those places. So we simply said, we're going to direct contract. We're going to talk to the hospitals. We're going to talk to the doctors. We're going to go ahead and proactively manage our employees' health better by working with those providers as partners. And we drove down our costs. We had a health and wellness program we brought in. And our overall cost of taking care of our employees dropped. And the satisfaction of taking care of the employees accelerated because they knew we cared. You know, we actually asked a bunch of things and helped them whenever they needed it. And so that was an interesting model for us and an experience in a large corporation. I mean, this is a multi, you know, tens of thousands of people around the world. It was, um, it was a good experience early on. And this was like more than two decades ago when we got in front of, we should understand how to manage health and focus on wellness and prevention. And so, um, and I know United Healthcare and Humana and Anthem and so, you know Cigna, they all have verbiage, which says they adhere to these kind of things, but the actual implementation of it is challenging, unless you have lined up with an integrated delivery system and live with all the ups and downs of it. You know, it's like running a corporation under a budget. You know, the people are a bunch of widgets. They're people that are the, they're the pieces of the puzzle that need to be quality managed, do regular checkups on quality assurance, patient satisfaction, et cetera. There's a particular institution, I don't know whether I'm allowed to name names, but I'm going to throw one out. I have always been fascinated by what has happened when Virginia Tech, which was a, you know, a really high quality medical school decided to merge with Carilion Clinic, which was a little Mayo that lived around the corner from them. And they have an integrated delivery system now. And because of their location in southwestern Virginia, physically, anybody who walks the ground goes on mud, grass, trees, whatever, in 200 miles north, south, east, or west of them is part of their system when they brought it together. And they started a medical school as well. The ability for them to do health economic data, to manage physician practices, to set up specialty clinics. I admit, given my work that I'm currently doing, they have started a treatment center or a brain injury center that we collaborate with and do research on. But it's the best model that I have come across in the United States for sure. And it's because it started late. 
It's not 30 years old and had to be a ship that was turned. It's about 12, practicing this way is about 12 years old. And everybody belongs to the integrated delivery system and they do research and they have access to all the records and the referrals go back and forth and really high quality care in a in what is clearly a cost-effective method. And I think they only work with well, three three insurers. One's Medicare, of course, and there's a couple of other payers that they work with. And so they have control, collaboration, communication, and it works. And it gets better all the time. And they train paraprofessionals. They train PAs. They train nurse practitioners. They, you know, have all kinds of physician extenders as well as attracting really good folks to their medical school now as well. So it's, it's been interesting watching that. And as I've contemplated sort of my long history, it's because they started from scratch by looking at where they should start, not having to retrofit. Nobody came in and said, I'm going to turn this ship around. They basically said, let's make a ship and let's put everything on the ship that we're supposed to have. And that's a rare opportunity. You know, it's a very rare situation that you can do that sort of thing. But you can see when it's done right, how well it works. Yeah, yeah. And it is rare, unfortunately. And what the common thread that I'm hearing you say is more local care, whether it's an IDN or in this example, and you have the practitioners um, really getting to know all of the patients too. And the practitioner could be, I mean- And each I, other. Right. That's right. You, you mentioned wellness. We don't do wellness well here in the United States. I mean, we talk about it, but- that that's not done in prevention. And part of it is the system, like you said, these organizations, all the insurance companies, they're just not set up for wellness and prevention. They're set up for addressing the urgent and the immediate. And you'll hear that, that they're having that person, you know, on, you know, their book, so to speak, for a year or two, then they go on to the next one. So there really is no long-term. That's right. So I, so I run businesses in Canada, and I ran a business in Israel, where both of which have, they have private pay as well, but they both have a baseline. People from the outside would call it socialized medicine. It's, it's not socialized medicine at the, at the most expensive, highest level, but there is a core accessibility, locational access of a level of care which everybody can get to. And then beyond that, they pay more to get, you know, the next level of care. But they do spend more time in base testing in order to, you know, at that access level of care, you have access to more of the kind of testing, et cetera, that you really need to do in order to set yourself up for knowing your own body and, and, and working forward. And people are not, they have a place to go when they're not super sick. It doesn't wait till it gets to be devastating. I'm hoping that heavily distributed healthcare with education will start to solve some of this so people don't go to the wrong location for the wrong thing because there's events, there's there's injuries, there's events, and then there's disease, which is exaggerated, chronic disease, which becomes the result of repeated events, cardiology, you know, repeated heart attacks equals heart failure, um, repeated brain injury equals neurodegenerative disease. 
So it's, you know, knowing how what's not urgent and what is early chronic. Catching things at the early chronic stage is the most important piece as you walk, you know, walk over from from the event, heart attack, into a, you know, into a disease process. And of course, the obesity level in the United States doesn't help anything either. You know, when you start looking at all of that contributing to overall unwellness, if you will, unhealthy behaviors. So if you had to tell all of us who are in the industry, you have a thread of, hey, you know what? Uh, we're very reactionary. A lot of the systems are being set up to take care of the urgent, whether it's urgent cares at Walmart's, Walgreens, CVS. That's all well and good. We want to have access to healthcare, but really getting to the core and you have all these, as a nation, we're getting more and more unhealthy, right? <laughs> With our diet and, and weight and all that bad stuff. What would you encourage all of us to do in that context? That's the environment that we live in, and we're trying to promote a more personalized medicine environment. What would your challenge be for all of us? The biggest factor, I think, that has contributed to this and is making things worse is the lack of appreciation and payment for what I describe as physician cognitive time. We don't pay physicians enough to think, and that's what I call their cognitive time. A cardiologist knows about, thinks about the physiology of the disease process that he has been trained to do in his fellowship, and even they don't have enough time to do anything other than respond to the symptoms you've come in for today instead of once a year doing a you know, a level setting um, and really thinking through things. It, we just pay in the emergency rooms and urgent care. Nobody thinks they just do. They're not being paid to think. They're not given enough time to think. They just do. And doing is short-sighted. It, it just ends up not, cre it creates a cycle of destructive medical interventions, I guess, is what I would call it. But I think that the biggest thing, we don't, we don't have our coding systems and our payment systems are not set up to support really good thinking and working with patients in a more, a more thoughtful, cognitive way, just the way our billing codes are. And I know as much as I've done work on reimbursement, and you, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I've gotten a lot of first-to-market novel diagnostic tests cleared for the first time, but we don't, what I'm finding is people are tend, like in an emergency room, people tend, because of the rules that the insurance companies have placed, people will code for reimbursement rather than code based on what was really going on. Like, I have seen it. You can see it in the records. They'll say, this patient really doesn't need a CT, I don't think, but I know that we'll get, if I order a CT, number one, it pops it up so I get better reimbursement. So they optimize their reimbursement when they can uh, to maximize the, uh, you know, the opportunity of that patient being in front of them so they can afford to spend a little bit more time. But you know, as we've done some adjudicated cases in our, our FDA clinical study, you can tell that some of these are just these are these people are ordering imaging because it's potentially necessary, but because they know 
that it's beneficial to the entity they work for, the hospital themselves, et cetera, because they're not paid for thinking, they're paid for doing, and that's a do. Yeah, that that's great. I mean, think more, do less. The system's set up to the exact opposite, right? And I'll figure out a way to optimize my payment. I need to do that because, quite frankly, I'm not getting paid for other things. So I, I need to do, you know, what I need to do. So, I mean, those are all big challenges that we face as a uh, as a, a country. Yeah. And then the auditors come in on the insurance side and challenge the billings, rightfully so, because they start to see some of this. And again, not rewarding thoughtfulness is a spiral that just is self-fulfilling. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Well, Donna, I want to thank you for your thoughtfulness today. And uh, I'm not going to reward you with anything, though, just to let you know. <laughs> but I appreciate your willingness to come on and just share your expertise and your insights with all of us as we all do our part uh, with moving the ball forward. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a good day. You've been listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, produced by Amplify Podcasts and original music by Jake Dimas. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love to hear from you with a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.